So last week, as we left the prophet Habakkuk, he was in the middle of a bit of a quandary. If you recall, he was asking God a question that I think we often wrestle with, which is, okay, everything inside the walls of your your people, inside your church, as we'd say today, we see the flaws in there, we see the problems, but, but God, why are you allowing those forces outside to bring your judgment when they seem even more unrighteous? And how do we make sense of that? Because you see, the, the prophet had just been told that, that the people of God, whom he'd come to the Lord and asked, why do you allow all these bad things to happen, all, all this unrighteousness to happen within your people? He'd been told the answer was this judgment that was going to come. And he looked at it, and it didn't make sense. And we we're told at the end he's going to wait like a watchman because he, he knows that God is going to answer him. And in our passage today, God is indeed going to answer him. And God's going to call him to wait. Waiting is hard. I don't like waiting. Does anyone here actually like waiting? You say, I, I, I really love it when I get put on hold. I, I love it when... When I, I go to an appointment and they're running an hour behind, I love getting stuck in traffic jams. I, I, I love waiting. And uh, we don't love waiting. And we really don't love waiting when the waiting is for us to have our reputation set properly, for things to be made right. We're not just waiting, but now we're waiting and we're feeling beaten down as we wait. And that's where the people of God are going to be. They're going to be exiled into Babylon by a people far more unrighteous than they are. God's going to use that unrighteous people as an instrument of his judgment, and then they're going to have to wait. They're going to have to hang on to who God is, even as it seems like everything has come crashing down. Sometimes we're in the, that boat. It feels like sometimes our city is in that boat. I don't think St. Louis gets enough respect in, in, in different polls about cities, but it felt like there was some vindication last week, and, and of course our local media was busy trumpeting it, that someone did a, a study combining all kinds of different factors and determined that, yes, once and for all, St. Louis is the barbecue capital of America. And, and okay, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this is worth celebrating because we've been waiting a long time to be vindicated. And, of course, you know, our cross-state rivals, the Kansas City mayor was getting all upset because he said, no, 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 Kansas City is the champion. And they've gotten that plenty of times. We've been vindicated, though. We've been waiting for this. Finally, justice has come, and the unrighteousness has ended, and everyone realizes that Mall's barbecue sauce is better than anything that Kansas City can come up with. I mean, it just is, right? Maybe Kansas City was bringing us some judgment for being too sure of our barbecue, and now, now we can cling to it. Of course, that's not all that serious. Or maybe it is if you, I mean, I shouldn't say that. There's some pitmasters who say, that, yes, this is, this is serious business. But what's happening to the people of God is really serious. Because if you think about it, why has God called together his people? He's called his people together to show his righteousness to the world, to show who he is to the world, and they've been doing a really, really bad job of it. Now he's going to carry them away. Then they're not going to be showing his righteousness at all, it would seem. They're no longer going to be there. The, the nation is going to be separated. Israel's already been wiped out. Judah, the, the southern kingdom, is all that's left. They're going to be carried off to Babylon. 
But God says, in the waiting, you're going to see who I am. And that's what we see as we turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, if you'd like to take your Bible and turn there. It says, and the Lord answered me, verse 2, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, <coughs> but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own, excuse me, collects as his own all peoples. Let's come before our God, because this is both wonderful news that we find tucked in here, but challenging news, and ask that he would help us in, in our own times of waiting to have this truth applied to us. Let's pray. Father, I don't like to wait. I, I, I doubt anyone in this room likes to wait. I doubt anyone that's joining us online likes to wait. And especially when we're waiting, wondering what you're doing, it, it can be so hard and we become impatient and we want to find alternative solutions and, and our trust wavers. We shift our trust to other things. But Lord, as we, we look at what you were telling the, the prophet to prepare your people for a time of waiting back in that day, would you help us also as your people today to be those who can wait in faith and cling to the hope that you give us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a couple of different parts to this particular passage that are, are important to, to sort of dwell on. We want to rush, or at least I want to rush right to verse 4. Verse 4 is perhaps the most familiar verse in all of the, the book of Habakkuk, and it's because we see it in the New Testament multiple times. The righteous will live by faith. We, we love that, and we should love that, but we want to rush right there. But what God says before he gets to that is perhaps even more important for us to hear. Because it tells us about how God works. Yes, the righteous shall live by faith, but but what does one do when one is seeking after God and yet feels like you're just stuck in waiting? And we can kind of speed over this. It sounds like just some kind of lead up to where God is going. But notice what he says here in verse 2. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. And this is significant. This may not strike us. And, and he's not talking incidentally about an iPad. You don't have to upgrade to the latest iPad OS before, before you can see what God has to say. He's talking about... A, a, an actual tablet, like a stone tablet or a metal tablet, there's some debate on which one it would have been, but some kind of solid thing that you would carve or etch in some way, make a record that would last. And this isn't the way that the Israel normally recorded things. The Babylonians sometimes did, but the Israelites typically didn't. It wasn't something they never did, but it wasn't something they normally did. And so why is God telling as a lead into this wonderful promise about faith, why does he start with that? He starts with that because he's saying, Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you something 
And it's something that's going to take a long time for you to realize, to experience, to, to see come to fruition. There's going to be times that you wonder if I really told you it. There's going to be lots of times to forget it. And so here's what you need to do. Don't just write it down. Write it down on something that's indelible, something that will stay, something that people can look at over and over again and be reminded of who I am. Don't just write it somewhere. Don't write it on on a piece of paper that you'll accidentally leave in your pocket and, and wash. Don't, don't, don't write it on a chalkboard. Write it on something that will last, and that way, when you're waiting, you know that I'm still there. You know when you're, you're waiting on the telephone on hold and, and, and you think, do they remember that I'm on here? And sometimes I really don't think they remember that, that we're on there. And occasionally I've finally just despaired. But, but sometimes there's that comforting thing that says, your estimated wait time is. And, and it actually is decreasing. And so sometimes it's kind of uh, not encouraging when you first hear it. Your estimated wait time is 49 minutes. <sighs> but then it goes down to 45 and 35 and 25. You, you know that you're waiting for something. You, it reminds you the wait is actually going somewhere. And that's what... God is intending for Habakkuk to experience here. Write down what I'm going to do in a way that you can keep looking at it and be reminded, no, I haven't forgotten you. I said you were going to wait. It's going to take a while. But I haven't forgotten you. Now, what is it that he's writing down? And that, again, has been debated. He doesn't say exactly how this falls into the overall set of oracles that that he's giving to the people. I I tend to think that what God is saying here is an instruction for the book of Habakkuk itself, which makes an awful lot of sense. Here are a series of oracles that that Habakkuk experiences and shares that, that, guess what, we haven't lost even to today. So where do we turn when... When we're wondering what God's doing, we turn to his word, and we can turn to this book here. That's why our series is entitled, Hey God, It's Dark Here. We we find ourselves in in these dark moments, and what do we do? We come to God, and we see the conversation God is having with Habakkuk here, not just for Habakkuk's sake, but for all his people for all time's sake. We find comfort. Yes, we're still waiting, but that that countdown is coming. It it is coming. God's promises are fulfilled. I read earlier that today is John Calvin's birthday, and and if you're like me and you're a theological geek, then then that's exciting, because how can you not be excited that John Calvin's birthday is today? Uh, It's just, you know, I I hope you're going home and having your John Calvin cake. It's it's, it's a wonderful day, Um, and in all seriousness, I, I, I do love John Calvin. There's so much that God spoke through him during the Reformation. Uh, let's go ahead and we'll, we'll bring up a, a little... Oh. Uh, there's a picture of Calvin. Yeah, uh, you, you can tell he's really ex- into the celebration here. Uh, he's not always known for his celebratory demeanor, but, but he was celebrating God's goodness oftentimes as... He taught God's word. 
but he went through times of waiting. You, you know, a lot of times we think about the Reformation and, and we, we hear some triumphant history about it on maybe one Sunday a year and the rest of the year we, we don't talk about it all that much, unfortunately. But, but we, we get to Reformation Sunday at the end of October and we're all celebratory and it sounds all triumphant and it's all moving forward and the Reformers are going out and they're, they're, they're doing all these exciting things. We don't usually mention on that day that John Calvin goes to Geneva, the city that he's best known for working as a Reformer, and spends a couple of years there and then is thrown out. You see, he came in and he saw the, the, the way that the people weren't acting righteously and he said, we need to protect the Lord's Supper. You shouldn't just be inviting people that have no faith, that have no commitment to the Lord, to the Lord's table. We actually need to take seriously Paul's admonition on, on guarding the Lord's table. And the people didn't like that. And he went through a, a number of different moral instructions like that, trying to call the city to repentance. And if you ever had the experience of trying to call someone to repentance, most people don't say, wow, thank you. I'm so glad that you called me to repentance. And, and the Genevans don't either. They, they say, well, if that's the way you feel, John, um, how about one-way ticket out of here? And they send him out. And for several years, he has to figure out what he's going to do. He's waiting. But God works in the waiting, and God works in the waiting in, in Calvin's life. Calvin goes to Strasbourg, where he comes under the mentorship of Martin Bootser, another reformer. And that reformer, much more than the young Calvin, has a pastor's heart. He, he cares about the congregation. That's what drives Bootser, is, is the unity and the peace of God's church and the pastoral leadership of it. And this influences Calvin. And if you look at Calvin post that time, it's, he's dramatically different. He, he's grown. He, he doesn't change his principles, but he understands better how to apply them. So in the moment as he's being tossed out, I'm sure he's thinking, oh, God, what are you doing here? Why are you allowing these unrighteous people who don't do what you care about to, to toss me out? And even if after a while, as some have suggested, maybe Calvin even realized that he hadn't handled things as well as he could have in Geneva, he still might have thought, Okay, so I didn't, but at least I was trying to implement your word. These people don't care about it. Why would you do that, God? What did God do? He, he took Calvin out to prepare him to eventually be invited back to Geneva, where he stayed until his death. And he worked the Reformation, and he wrote tremendous works that continue to influence God's church today. But it came in a time of waiting. And whether it's for him, or for, it's for Habakkuk, or it's for you, or for me, what are we called to? What does this passage speak to us? It speaks to us that, that we can have confidence in the waiting, that, that just as Habakkuk was to, to write this down on something that would last, we should take these words and etch them into our hearts and minds. When we're wondering, where are you, God? It'd be really good to turn here and say, well, oftentimes God does call us to wait, but that doesn't mean he's forgotten. It doesn't mean that at all. Verse 4. God talks of the Babylonians who are coming to conquer. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. There's a question embedded in that statement. The question is, where's my security? Where am I going to find security? 
where am I going to say, uh, everything's under control, and, and the temptations are, and I'm not talking about the thing group, the temptations are to turn inside ourselves rather than to God. When everything feels out of control and I feel like I'm waiting, the temptations often say, well, what can I do out of my own strength, my own wisdom, my own ability, my own connections to somehow make things come together? And we notice, and we've seen this for three weeks now as we go through this, the description of the Babylonians keeps coming back to this point. The Babylonians trust in themselves. Behold, his soul is puffed up. He's thinking, aren't I great? I am powerful. I am mighty. The earth has never seen an army like the army that I'm a part of. I'm something, and I can bring about results. And the temptation we see often for God's people in this time and today is when we face that, to do exactly the same, to say, well, if, if what's going to get them someplace is their strength, then what's going to get me someplace is my strength. And so we start trying to cling to our strength. We start trying to, to build up our strength. We, we, we think, somehow I am going to get the edge on the world. What does God do in saying this? He's, he's contrasting two things here. He's saying, well, the Babylonians are proud. They're, they're trusting in how great they are, but what does it look like for the righteous? The righteous shall live by his faith. There, there's that all-too-familiar quote that, that we know in the context of Paul's letters, and it, it's wonderful there. But notice here, before we jump to that, that it's in this comparison with someone who isn't trusting in faith, isn't trusting in God, but trusting in himself. The Babylonian soul is puffed up. He's busy building himself up. And, and too often, as Christians, we do the same thing. How sad is it that we profess that we follow the risen Lord, the, the one who, who did all the work for us, and yet when it comes down to it, we still fall into the trap of trying to trust in ourselves. It's a lot harder to do that in practice than to do it in, in theology. We can say theologically, yeah, God's in control, and God's the one that's in charge, and, and God's the one that's going to save me. But then I run into a situation, I think, well, what can I do? What am I going to do? Maybe I come to a point where I say, well, I can't do anything. And if you see that Babylonian army coming, eventually you have to say, well, I can't do anything. There's no way I'm going to stop them. And indeed, the Judahites couldn't stop them. They're carried off to Babylon into the exile for a period of decades. So what do they do? Well, they realize, well, we should be listening to God. They hear the, the message of judgment. Oh, maybe we shouldn't be worshiping other gods. Maybe we actually should pay attention to what the Lord has to say. And sometimes we get to that point and we realize our own strength, but then we fall into another temptation, which is to say, well, I know now how I'm going to, uh, to deal with these, these invaders that come at me in the future. I'm just going to keep the law really well. I'm going to prove how righteous I am. I, I hear that word righteousness there. Aha, there it is. The faith shall live by the righteous. See, we, we turn it on its head. And we start thinking, well, if I can keep God's law precisely enough, then everything is going to be okay. Have you ever tried to do that? 
you've been a Christian for long enough, there's probably been some point in your life you start to do that kind of bargaining with God. Sometimes it's in a really bad crisis situation. We say, God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll do X, Y, and Z. And we start rattling off things that we should have been doing anyway. But, it, but God, if you fulfill this momentary need, I will do it. And then, of course, you'll keep giving to me because I'm doing your law now. And that's what we see in the people of God. They, they, they eventually come back from exile, but now they're no longer those that are chasing after other gods. They're chasing after the God of their own self-righteousness. Right. That's it. And they can't even hear the Messiah when he comes because they're so busy focusing on, on their self-righteousness, on their law-keeping. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Reflecting on this very verse that we're talking about, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit faith. Laws of faith. Now, now, Paul here is not saying that, that the Old Testament, we should just rip it out. Or God's moral law is bad, that it's, it's bad to do good things. He's not trying to be all, or, all Orwellian here and say, well, we, you know, this stuff is, this, this isn't good. What's he saying? saying when we live as even some early Christians were thinking we should live, where where we're putting our stock in how we keep God's law or certain parts of it. And, and, And if we keep it well enough, then we have grace from God. We're getting it wrong. Even our law keeping is a grace from God. We can't do it on our own. That's right. But the righteous shall live by his faith. What is his faith? Let's start with that. His faith is his wholehearted commitment, as one commentator put it, to the faithfulness of God. I love that. The wholehearted commitment to the faithfulness of God. That's what we're called to. We're called to to look to God and say, God, you are faithful, and so I'm looking to your faithfulness. I'm looking to what Jesus has done. That's where I'm trusting Maybe we come to that point for a while and it starts to feel a little more comfortable because now I've realized, well, okay, so I'm not going to outwit the enemy. I'm not going to go to the gym enough and I'm going to be strong enough to somehow conquer the enemy. I'm not going to uh, outperform even the greatest Pharisee in law-keeping. Okay, I, I'm trusting in Jesus. I, I, I'm looking to God's faithfulness and now I should be comfortable, right? Because now I'm not stressing out on these things. So we start to trust in our comfort. Say It's really nice to be comfortable. And God, okay, I got this. Now you should keep me comfortable. I want to be comfortable. And, and the sign that everything's going right, the sign that I'm in, in your covenant is that I'm comfortable. And then things happen and we think, has God abandoned me? Has he forgotten me? Am I not really one of his? Is he not really there? 
hey, God, it's dark here, and I don't understand. I, I thought, I, I see you're faithful. Why am I now facing the things that I face? And here we come right back squarely to the situation of the moment that Habakkuk is receiving this oracle about. Sometimes God is going to bring discomfort to us as judgment. Sometimes he's going to use it not to say he's cutting us off, not to say he's rejecting us, but to, to reform us, to enable us to be whom it is that he's called us to be. So sometimes we go through momentary times of trials and tribulations so that we can have those things in us that are preventing us from fulfilling God's calling stripped away. I think that's what you see in the story of John Calvin's life. He goes and has a time where he's stripped away from where he is so that he can be of the right mindset to complete the calling that God has given to him. And sometimes God does that to us as well. Now, the, the danger there is then suddenly we say, well, every time something goes wrong, God must be judging me, and we start to really feel completely downtrodden and beaten down because we think, well, I must be just really messed up because God is constantly judging me, and I don't know what else to do, and you start just tearing yourself apart. Sometimes it's not judgment at all. Sometimes it's living in a broken world that opposes God, and if we're actually doing what God has called us to do, there's going to be plenty of times where it's not going to be comfortable. Author of Hebrews turns to this verse as well. Hebrews chapter 10. He's encouraging people that have experienced some persecution and are going to experience a lot more persecution. He says, For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The author of Hebrews says to these people getting ready to face persecution, be ready, it's going to come. It's going to come gushing at you. You're not going to be able to stop it. It's going to be painful. It's going to be bad. But we're not living by our comfort. We're not living by our security. We're not living by if the blessing bank is filling up enough. We're living by faith. And God takes pleasure in his people as we live by faith. Now, he says that by a negative statement that God will take no pleasure in those who who shrink back and who don't live by faith. But think about what he says then, and he says it with great confidence. But we are not those who shrink back. God's people, as much as we want to, and at times we start to take a step back, as we are in his grip, we don't shrink back. Not really. Momentarily, maybe. But he doesn't let go of the ones he's called. He holds on to us. And so we wait. Those people that were going to be persecuted in Rome were going to wait. Some of them were going to die waiting. Some of them were going to watch their loved ones die waiting. You know, most of our waiting doesn't even compare to that kind of waiting where, where we're waiting for someone to come and arrest a loved one and, and kill them for confessing Jesus. We, we don't experience that, thankfully. Although God's word would encourage us to be ready that if we ever needed to, that we would. 
I'm sure many of those people, as they, they had just become believers in Jesus, wondered, well, what are we really waiting for? Is he really going to come? Mm-hmm. Reminds me of the, the 20th century play, and, and this, uh, this is not a recommendation of this play. It's probably one of the, my least favorite literary plays I've ever read, but Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, if you've ever experienced it, I like to joke it's a play w- that's waiting for a plot. Not much happens in it. <laughs> They're just waiting. It's literally a play about waiting. And it's two guys conversing sort of nonsensically half the time about waiting and just waiting and waiting and being told that they're almost done waiting and then finding out, no, they're still waiting. And, and the play ends and they're waiting, wondering if the wait actually ends because they're waiting for this man named Godot and they don't even know if Godot really exists. Now, Beckett was unwilling to completely commit this to being a picture of God, although certainly people have made that connection, and sometimes people feel that way. Maybe you've experienced that. I think probably at some point we all experience that. We wonder, well, am I waiting for God because God isn't actually there? It feels very empty in that moment. And see, for for those two men in that play as they're, they're waiting, part of the challenge is they're told Godot is coming and then he doesn't come and then they're told, well, maybe he's not coming. And so they see that they can't really count on anything that's being sent from them allegedly by Godot. And that's the key difference when we're waiting for God. When we're waiting for God, we pick up his word and we see already how he keeps fulfilling what he's promised to do. And so as we wait, what do we find? Even in the waiting, he's fulfilling his promises. He said there would be times of waiting. But he said it will hasten to an end. And that's part of what makes waiting for Godot so despairing is that we don't know if there's ever going to be an end or if they're just going to wait there until they just die. But God says there will be a time in which the waiting ends. And that's a, a, a cosmic level, an a, a entire creation level, that, that someday the waiting will end, Jesus will return, Jesus will reign triumphantly. We're told to wipe away every tear. There, there's that kind of answer to that, but it's also in our lives. And, and sometimes that, that end to the waiting is, is something that we experience very much in this lifetime, and we say, wow, I, now I see how God was working. That's how it is for Calvin in, the, in his life, where he's, called back to Geneva. Sometimes it it doesn't happen in this life. He calls us home first, and we find the end of waiting in his presence. But what do we find? The wait ends one way or another in experiencing God. That we actually do come into his presence, that we do find him. We're waiting, but not endlessly We're waiting, but not meaninglessly. We say, well, that's all well and good, but but while I'm waiting, the others are doing so well. I'm not doing so well, but others are doing so well. Those that that puff themselves up, they're doing well. Those who who seem to be self-righteous, they seem to be doing well. Those who are really only in it for their own comfort, they seem to be doing okay, but I'm not. That's where this this last verse of our passage today that almost feels a little out of place comes into play. 
Because if we keep in mind verse 4 is, behold, his soul's puffed up. He's talking about that conqueror. And then he has that statement about what the righteous do, but then he comes back to the conqueror again. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The waiting... as others seem to be succeeding. It's not endless waiting, and it's not meaningless waiting. And here's the thing, while the other people seem to be getting what they were waiting for in the moment, and we wonder why don't we just do like they did, and that's what the Israelites often figured, and that's often why they chase after other gods. I think that's often why we chase after our own success and our own idols today. The things that we mark as the end of the waiting are passing, when he says wine is like a traitor, how is wine like a traitor? Wine is like a traitor because people get drunk so that they can find comfort in the drunkenness. They're not experiencing whatever they're trying to wash away with that drunkenness. But then it ends. And then they feel worse. An arrogant man who is never at rest, it, it doesn't stay in that state. And then the only solution is to try to go into it more and more and more and descend into despair. When we chase after these things that seem to provide success, it's like the greed of death itself. Death doesn't ever say, as we're told in Scripture, that it has enough. It just keeps consuming. And so do, do we when we fall into those temptations. It's interesting, if we're not going to turn there tonight, but if we turn to Daniel chapter 5, we, we find King Belshazzar, who has all this conquest of the people of Israel. He has the temple implements. He, he seems to be riding high as the people of God are riding low. And he says, you know what? Let's have a party. We're going to have a drunken party. And we're not going to just use anything to drink out of. We're going to drink out of the very cups of the temple of the God of the people of Israel. And he does. And it seems like everything is great until a message appears on the wall. And his time comes to an end. God's judgment comes down on him. Because here, here he could have been. He could have been the, the, the justice that came to the people of God and then chosen to turn to the Lord himself and, and actually been a righteous king. But he doesn't. He, he just chases after a way of making himself look important. And God cuts him off. Indeed, it is a lived example of what we saw a few weeks ago on Monday night when we looked at Proverbs 30, 15 to 16. Agar writes there, The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. These things are all alike. When we feed our greed, when we feed these temptations that we've been talking about tonight, they just keep consuming and consuming, but they don't satisfy and, and that's the problem here. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It seems in the moment like these other things will somehow actually satisfy, but they just keep consuming more and more and more. And just like death never stops claiming victims until the day that Jesus returns, 
So too, our own attempts at solutions never actually satisfy. They just pass. Greed is white as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. So where do we find the solution to this? And what actually is the solution? What are we waiting for? And notice here in this promise, it's that the righteous shall live by his faith. Paul helps us to think about that more in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's an interesting phrase he uses there. I, I had never really spent much time on it, and I, I started wrestling with it, this for faith, for, from faith, or from faith, by faith. The translators have done it different ways, but, but the basic point here seems to be this, that from God's faith, God's faithfulness, comes our faith. How do the righteous live by faith? That indeed is a gift of faith itself. From the faithfulness of the only one who is truly faithful to give us who are faithless faith and offer us something to hang on to, something that won't go away, something that, as the author of Hebrews said earlier, that we won't shrink back from because it's a faith given by God. The righteous shall live by faith. What, 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 what is that living like? We might, might feel like, well, I'm living by faith, but I don't feel like I'm living. I feel like I'm just dying here. But as Paul breaks it apart in, in Romans 1, we start to understand more fully the, the full extent of the faith that's being revealed here in Habakkuk, which is salvation itself. Notice Paul says it's the power of the gospel that's at play here. It's not merely that we get to live a little longer and God's going to prevent some marauding army from coming in and killing us. It's that we experience salvation. We experience the actual eternal life given by God and that that will last, unlike whatever else we can obtain. The Babylonians looked like they were living while many of the, the people of Israel were dying, but they too would die and they wouldn't experience eternal life because they had turned to their own strength rather than to the Lord. And we're challenged, where are we going to turn? Today and every day. Last week was 4th of July, and if you're like me, I, I mentioned this, I've mentioned this plenty of times. I'm a pyromaniac. I love fireworks. I love seeing fireworks. I love big fireworks. I love small fireworks. I love sparklers. I, I love artillery shells. I love smoke bombs. I, I love the big shows that light up the sky. But one of the things I really love is going on a hillside nearby and seeing just uh, right around 4th of July, the hillside light up as, as all kinds of people are shooting off fireworks, and it seems endless. You know, you shoot off your own fireworks, and, and you light it, and you think, oh, this is a really pretty one. It, it's, oh, this, let's see, this is uh, $20. I'll put this here. You light it, and 30 seconds later, it's done. I still love blowing things up. I, I, I can't help it. I, I love it. But, but it, it's passing, and then you sit there on this hillside, and the whole hillside is covered with fireworks, and it feels like it just goes on and on. Even the best shows that you might see put on come to an end, and yet this just keeps going and going, and it, it feels like it'll last. Here's a, a picture I took last week of just a little bit of it. And it just went on like this, filling the sky with beautiful fireworks on and on and on for hours. And 
It was beautiful. What if you drove there Tuesday night to that hillside? Or Wednesday night. What if you drove there tonight? You say, oh, wow, that was really beautiful. I'm going to hightail it over here after Little Hills tonight, and I'm going to go. I'm going to look at those fireworks. Tim, can you give me the address? I want to go see it. You'd look at those hills, and there wouldn't be anything there. Because while there was all kinds of momentary victories popping up and lighting up the sky, and it was beautiful, they still all ended in a few seconds. They just passed by. That's what the, the oracle given to Habakkuk is talking about. We look out at the success of the world and it looks like it's enduring because we see all these fireworks lighting up the sky, blowing up after blow up after. You hear the, the satisfying thud and it goes on and on and you think, but everyone else is succeeding. But it doesn't last. And everyone's momentary victory that, that lights up part, a little bit of that sky drops back down and then we're looking at someone else's victory that passes. What doesn't pass? What, what stays lit? That's the eternal life that God gives to us. The righteous shall live by faith, that faith given by God that we might turn to him and then trust wholeheartedly in the faithful one. And as we trust in him and we cling to him and we hold to him, he offers us more than, than just a little firework. Sometimes that's all we want. It's just that little firework. But instead he offers us a light that doesn't extinguish in his presence. Is that where you are tonight? Whether you're online or you're here in person, is that where you are tonight? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you experienced what it is to rest in him? And if you haven't, my prayer is that tonight would be the night that God's spirit would give you that faith. The faithful one enabling us to trust wholeheartedly in his faithfulness. And if you are experiencing it, but you're looking at that hillside and you're saying, but it looks awfully beautiful over there. We come to his table and we look at it and it doesn't look like much. We see people eating really, really fancy meals because of the way they've trusted their own success and they can buy really extravagant dinners and, and we say, well, this is just a little cup with an itty-bitty wafer and a little bit of juice. How, how does this help the situation? What does God say? He says that anyone who trusts in him, any baptized believer in Jesus can come to this table. And as we do, th this reminds us of what is to come. It's like that tablet that Habakkuk was to engrave that would last. Every time the church comes before the Lord's table, and partakes, it's that engraved tablet saying, the righteous shall live by faith. God's faithfulness endures. And it endures when it doesn't feel like it. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, the, the first thing is to trust in him. Because the Babylonians could have picked up, picked up that tablet of Habakkuk's and held on to it, and it wasn't going to do them any good. But the righteous shall live by faith. May you experience that faith. And for all of you who have trusted in Jesus, as you come before this, that's what is there to communicate to you today, that promise, that faithfulness of God. And so it was that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in like manner, after supper, he took the cup and he poured it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you unto the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. What does Paul say in reflecting on that? He says, as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his faithfulness, the one who gives us the ability to endure. Let's come before him now in prayer. Lord, we are not those who are able of our own to be faithful, and yet you are the faithful one. You have gone through everything for us. And so it is now that we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might communicate the the benefits of your body and blood to us, that you might strengthen us, that we would endure, that we would be those who live by faith, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name.